say to any artist who doesn't like moving, it's fine, we'll just walk. Just remember John Travolta walking down the street with his paint can in Saturday Night Fever. That wasn't walking, it was dancing. This is Seven Stages, a podcast from the stage sponsored by Audible. If you're listening to this during lockdown, there is nothing I can recommend more highly than going to YouTube and watching the roller skating opening to the 1980 film Can't Stop the Music, which amazingly was a mock biopic of the village people starring Caitlyn Jenner, or then Bruce. It is incredible, and also just one of the many, many things Arlene Phillips has choreographed during her career. She grew up in a poor family on the edge of Manchester and she devoted herself to dance from a very young age. She moved to London, became a babysitter for Ridley Scott, as one does, and founded the seminal dance group Hot Gossip, dressing them in lingerie because she didn't have enough money to buy proper clothes. After appearing on the Kenny Everett video show, Arlene was censured by Mary Whitehouse and the skimpy troupe caught the attention of Andrew Lloyd Webber, leading Arlene to one of her biggest successes, Starlight Express. She's choreographed Annie and Monty Python on film, We Will Rock You, Grease and Saturday Night Fever on stage, music videos for Aretha Franklin, Diana Ross, Whitney Houston, Freddie Mercury, Duran Duran, Elton John. She's movement-directed plays by Shakespeare and, unexpectedly, Alan Bennett. And, of course, she was a judge on the first five series of Strictly Come Dancing. Talking to me about her life and career, Arlene Phillips. It starts very simply and then gets a little bit harder. But the first question is, you know, you, you grew up in, in Prestwich near Manchester. You were really interested in dance from a very early age. But what was the first show you remember seeing? The first dance piece I remember seeing was being taken to the free trade hall uh, by my mum and dad, my brother and sister to see a Russian dance concert. I remember it so clearly because there were pickets outside the Free Trade Hall, pretty much by the sort of Manchester Communist Party, if you like. And we had to battle through to get to our seats from the street into the entrance. And I just remember being afraid and thinking, why are we doing this? And we went up and up and up to the very, very back of the back row. And this concert unfolded before my eyes of the most incredible dance of classical ballet, of Georgian state dancers. And I knew that I wanted to live my life being part of that. They talk about running away with the circus. I could have happily run on stage and stayed with those dancers, I think, for the rest of my life. And how old were you when you saw that? I was about five years old. So quite small, because I remember where I reached up to on my mother's coat (laughs) as we walked through the crowd. And by that age, so roughly aged five, were you already you know, interested in, fascinated by dance? We listened to classical music all the time. The great ballets, Tchaikovsky, and and my love was movement. Although being a dancer hadn't really formed in my mind, I somehow knew 
instinctively that it was movement that I wanted to do. And I was told I was always dancing around the house from being a small child. This family, she was from a huge family. And in many ways, they were great adventurers. You know, I had one aunt who became the first, I think, uh, vegetarian in the whole of Manchester. And she was treated as if she was very strange. Um, another became a scientist. Another adventured off to America. They were, they were people that were doers and people who wanted to find a life that was unusual and different. And dance really didn't come into it anywhere. And likewise from my father. But I think he grew from the love of classical music and for their love of musical films. And so you eventually, I mean, not not very old, you, you ended up in London... Um, at the dance centre. So how did you get there from Manchester? I mean, what were the what was the kind of path? Um, the path for me arriving in London was a pretty unusual one. I was taking ballet classes um, paid for by an uncle. Um, and when I was 50, my mother passed away and I had all these plans to go and study at a dance school in London. Um, this became impossible. My sister was 12 my brother was 17. He left uh, school to get a job uh, as my father took ill. And so I stayed home to help with the family and managed to get a grant uh, to study full-time dance in Manchester. And then I became a teacher and that, I thought, was my career until I was sent to London by my ballet teacher to spend one week at this newly opened dance centre in Floral Street that had all of these American dance teachers teaching new styles of, of jazz, of modern, of contemporary. And then I found one class led by a woman called Molly Malloy, this American wonderful dancer teacher and I fell in love with the style of dance she was teaching. And I just thought, I'm not going to go back to Manchester. And I stayed in London, managed to find uh, a place to live with a job. And I studied and studied and studied. I worked in cafes. I did everything I could to live this new life in London. How did they feel back in Manchester? You know, there was... The, I, I know you've spoken before about this wonderful head of, of uh, the dance school in Manchester, Muriel Tweedy, which is an incredible name. How did they feel that you'd just kind of up sticks and, and left? Everyone was furious with me. My sister, my brother, my father. But there was a burning inside me, something telling me I was doing the right thing and I had to be brave. My teacher was not happy, but I did keep in close contact as I sent her some money every week to pay back the costs of being in London, staying at the YMCA, my train fare, the first time I'd been in London. And eventually she did forgive me, as did my family. I have an understanding that this is a life I'd always wanted in dance and I had to find a way to do it and I had found a way to do it and always resolved I would say. And Molly Molly Malloy the, the teacher that you found in London so she managed to find you some work 
babysitting, which led to a kind of unexpected path. Yes. <laughs> Molly had a very close friend called Ridley Scott, um, who at the time had a uh, company making TV commercials. I became a teacher because that's what I knew how to do. And I was the first teacher to teach jazz at arts educational schools, Italia Conti, uh, Bush Davis, as it was then. I went all over teaching and sort of became Molly's assistant. She moved to Paris and I took over her classes and Ridley asked me to choreograph a commercial. And I said, well, I'm not really a choreographer. And he said, oh, uh, it's, it's very easy. It's Lions Made Ice Cream. It's a, a farmer, a milkmaid and a dancing cow. The milkmaid <laughs> was Miriam Margulies. And he said, it, it's really easy and very short. So I made this commercial and it was a, you know, a hop, skip and a jump, a couple of, you know, bouncy milkmaid steps. And followed that very quickly by Ridley being asked to make two of the biggest Dr Pepper commercials for the US that had ever been made. They were made at Pinewood Studios. They were huge, huge in number, extravagant big commercials. He asked me to choreograph them and I bravely took on the job and they were so successful that for years after I was asked to go to America and and choreograph um, many of the Dr Pepper commercials being made with dance. I think I did about 10, 15 more. So that sort of leads on to the second question then, which is what's the first show you worked on? You had this, you know, incredible career in, in advertising already and then soon came work in film. But how did you end up working on your first stage show and what was that first stage show? With the money I was earning from commercials, I created a dance group called Hot Gossip, remarkably unsuccessful. Um, for three years, we sort of struggled. I tried to keep them going. And they were spotted by a TV producer, um, David Mallett, who was about to do the new Kenny Everett video show. He put Hot Gossip on television. And after them being rejected for three years, being told they were too sexy, they became what is perceived as an overnight sensation because Mary Whitehouse, the protector of public morals at the time, was so outraged that these dancers, these sexy dancers, were on television early evening on a Monday night. She complained about it, and because she complained about it, it got into the newspapers. We were front page of every newspaper, and suddenly... I became a name that people recognise as a choreographer because my name was there, Arlene Phillips, Hot Gossip. Andrew Lloyd Webber was very drawn to Hot Gossip and so Andrew and I became great friends. Because Hot Gossip were recognised, I was then asked to make a film called Can't Stop the Music in the US with the village people and bring the whole company of Hot Gossip to be in this film as the dancers. I had, unusually, in the middle of the film, I had my baby daughter, Alana, and I'd been learning to roller skate for the film, and Alan Carr, the producer, had said, oh my goodness, I've forgotten you were pregnant, take those roller skates off. 
When I came back from making Can't Stop the Music, Christmas 1979, I was invited to Andrew's home. I told him the story about this roller skating choreographer, just as a aside, really. Two years later, he called me up and said, do you still roller skate? And I said, well, yes, it doesn't go away. And he asked me to choreograph Starlight Express. So your your first professional stage production was just this incredible long-running success, you know, one of the longest-running musicals of all time. But not only that, it's one of those rare shows which is known principally for its choreography. So where did you start with Starlight Express? Because it's hard enough in a big musical like that getting your performers to to be the triple threats they need to be, singing, dancing, acting, and then put them on roller skates. Where do you even start? The very first thing we did when we thought Starlight Express was going to be a reality was begin with a workshop. And for the workshop, we had to decide how we were going to do this. We needed triple threats, but we also needed some people that could skate. So our auditions were people who could skate and could they sing and dance, possibly, and triple threats and a roller skating teacher to see if they could stand up on roller skates, let alone move. So we did a workshop um, which was hilarious, but it, it was very difficult and the skaters had no idea, every time I said five, six, seven, eight, what I was talking about. But immediately we finished the workshop we were stumped of where on earth we could do this show. And John Napier, the designer, Andrew and Trevor Nunn, the director, looked everywhere to try to find a place. They looked at Earl's Court. They never thought this would work in a traditional theatre until John Napier walked into the Apollo Victoria and said, oh, yes, and sort of created this idea of what our world of starlight world was going to be. When you were choreographing it and when you were sort of putting it into the Apollo Victoria, did it feel kind of dangerous? I mean, did you feel... Because it's mad, this idea, you know, it's still mad today, the idea of having a, a roller rink built into a West End theatre. Did it have that kind of edge to it when you were putting together? It was so terrifying. We had built some ramps and bowls in the studio in Kensal Rise where we were working, but they in no way represented what we were met with when we first went into the theatre. We tried it with some of the more advanced skaters and they were padded up like the Michelin man, but even so, we all had to go out of the theatre back to Kensal Rise where much of the bowls and the way they connected to the flat floor were remade. So it shut in the West End in 2002 and it ran for 18 years, I think. But you've kind of stuck with it still since then. I guess I've stuck with it. It's now about to go into, or had coronavirus not happened, its 32nd year in Bochum, in Germany, which will happen later this year. Um, and that show has changed many times, but specifically this last two years, where Andrew really recreated the show and brought it much 
more into the world we live in today. Um, it's no longer male engines and female carriages. It has mixed genders for many of the roles. Uh, female engines, the most important being a mama, now not just a papa. And there are big changes, of musical changes, but some of those changes go back to 1984 when the music is really back in fashion. So question three then, um, what's your favourite show that you've worked on in your career? I have many, many shows that I've loved, but I'm going to talk about something I did recently. And as movement director, um, not as a choreographer, although there were splashes of choreography all the way through, and that is A Midsummer Night's Dream with Nick Heitner at the Bridge Theatre. I was creating movement that was not for dancers. We, I think we had one or two maybe people who had danced in the show, but also trying to involve the audience. Um, it's sort of semi-immersive, and the flow through the show from every department, in a way, is choreography because it never stops moving. And I loved every second and realised that you can go from something where you need the skills of the artists in the show, like Starlight Express, which are athletic and unusual, and the skills of the beautiful actors that keep the flow of Midsummer Night's Dream going when there can be no stopping and you have Ariel above you and pieces moving in and out. And I guess the two really sit for me on either side of, of the work that I do. It's interesting because there's been such a variety of, of work in your career and and you'd worked at the bridge a couple of years earlier with Alan Bennett's play Alleluia and you did the movement for that, which was set in uh, in a... a it was set in a kind of um, ITU ward, sort of. It was in a geriatric ward in a hospital, wasn't it? And you've worked with obviously the the top of their game professional dancers who who do this for a living. And you've worked, for example, on Alleluia with people who don't dance, and it's not been part of their skill set ever. And you've also done that with you know huge, huge stars of of the world of music. How do you kind of approach it when? when the person you're working with just isn't an actual movie. I mean, for example, you put choreographed Monty Python. How do you how do you get them to move and to dance? Okay, so let me just first briefly talk about Alleluia. Um, when Nick Heitner said to me, you're going to have a chorus line of 12, probably over 75, 80-year-olds. I said, do they dance move? Oh, yeah, I think they've all done something in their time. Well, they may have done something in their time, but then I was met with this chorus line of actually one of them was in his 90s. Some could move, uh, some couldn't remember how to move. It was, it was just the most glorious, fulfilling experience of trying to get them to dance because it's, it's, the, the play was all about memory. And we were experiencing that people who uh, sometimes couldn't remember. And I found this extraordinary patience 
because an understanding of this was real and eventually realised that if they did forget, it, it no longer mattered. I wasn't doing a chorus line and this was really true to life um, and I loved it. But I think the thing that you need when you're teaching someone who can't dance is patience. And in music videos, the, the purpose of a music video is to make the artist look good, whether they dance or not. And of course, I would work with Freddie Mercury, who absolutely knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to dance, he wanted to be flamboyant and was completely involved in what, you, what was created. And then Elton John just, I'll turn up on the day, he didn't really want to dance. I'd encourage him a little bit. And I always say to any artist who's got to make a, a music video and doesn't like moving, it's fine, we'll just walk. And the walk is set to your music. Just remember John Travolta walking down the street with his paint can in Saturday Night Fever. That wasn't walking, it was dancing. So there are easy, easy ways uh, of making it happen. With the Pythons, I just knew if I made it funny, they'll be part of it. And um, with the Pythons, we had one big number where they really didn't have to dance too much, but we'll all have a lot of fun with a huge big number, um, as in the meaning of life, um, every sperm is sacred. <laughs> I remember that song very well. Um, so let's go on to question four then. So, you know, it's a vexed question at the moment, but what are you working on at the moment? Oh, I'm waiting to see the projects that I had this year um, when, they're, when they're going to happen because um, the first thing I was supposed to be doing is going into rehearsal for the second tour of Greece. And we had just completed casting. We were just about to go into rehearsal. And obviously, we have no idea when we can regroup, when we can gather. We're all waiting with bated breath, as everybody is, up and down the country, choreographers, dancers, musicians, everyone, actors, are waiting to find when we can get back to our craft, when we hear the words, rehearsals start at 10 o'clock on Monday. Who knows when that's going to be? I'm trying to find patience and not lose my passion for creativity, but to keep on knowing that this will all change. And so kind of turning my head to the number of, of performers who are kind of falling through the cracks at the moment to get help, those who work both freelance and on PAYE, because most dancers often take a second job and choreographers. So I'm, I'm just trying to get my head round, not panicking about what the future holds, but knowing that it will hold something. Yeah, I think that's the only approach we can take at the moment, really, isn't it? It's uh, it's just it's dreadful. But we'll we'll move on to cheerier things. So, question five is: What was the one show that got away? So, either as a theatre maker, you know, you uh, missed the email inviting you to choreograph the Queen, or uh, you, or as an audience member, you missed your train and and didn't get to see a, a show that you always wanted to see. The thing that has 
made me sad and the show that I probably will see but didn't was the new West Side Story in America. Um, I heard many different opinions about it, but as it's my all-time favourite show, I was about to go to New York and see it, and of course, couldn't travel. Um, and that is something that I really, really feel miserable about. How do you feel about the idea of of kind of re-choreographing it? Because obviously the the Joan Robbins choreography is just it, some of the most iconic choreography of all time. What do you, do you feel about the idea of kind of updating and reinventing a show like that? I think it's very hard to reinvent West Side Story, mainly because... The music and the movement are knitted together in a way that I think it's hard to pull it apart. Every accent, every little bit of that musical arrangement feels like the choreography and the music are forever joined hand in hand. But I do think shows should have a chance to be reinvented, but I think they need complete reinvention. And I guess I just want to see the production in America because I gather it is so different. And I can't imagine how I'm going to feel of something I carry always in my heart, what recreation can do, because I'm in love with hip-hop, lyrical hip-hop, contemporary dance. This has changed our way of seeing things. And I want to know, does this work in, in a musical that is so beloved because of what the creators made? Mm. I, I would love to see that show as well. I think we'll, we'll, we'll catch a flight together uh, when this is all over, Arlene, and we'll go and see it. Yes! <laughs> Question six. You've got an empty space and an unlimited budget. What show would you stage now? And it can either be completely invented or it can be a revival of an existing show. I think right now I would create a new show. Um, I always think about after 9-11, the reaction to Mamma Mia. And I wonder what people will want to see when we come through all of this. What will we want to think? What will we want to feel? I would want to create a show where the music would be music that people know because it's in their DNA, completely rearranged. And I would want to do something about love because I think that is what we need right now. As creators and performers, we're used to feeling love from the audience but we're also used to giving love back. And that's the thing we most need to share. It's interesting as well that you're saying that you would, you know, you want this show to be about love, which, you know, is very much what we all need right now. 
The dance world, it strikes me, especially when you look at films, you know, like Black Swan or Suspiria or whatever, has been quite this quite intense world of, you know, of tyrants and punishing schedules and and this kind of thing. Um, And you yourself have said that you used to be more more tyrannical than than you are now. Do you feel like the dance world has changed in that respect? The dance world, like many worlds, has had to change. We look at a very different way of teaching now, not just in the dance world, but in schools. The the disciplined world of dance I was brought up in into, um, dance teachers with sticks, dance teachers, you know, stomping their stick on the floor and occasionally whacking out if your leg wasn't high enough. That doesn't exist anymore. I was very demanding, but I was also demanding on myself. I wanted to be the best dancer I could be. I wanted to be the best in class, the strongest, the fastest, more pirouettes than anyone else. And so therefore, I demanded of many, many, if not all of my dancers, and bizarrely, many of them remember it with teaching them something that they kept and have taken with for the rest of their lives or their careers. But I guess I've definitely softened. I've definitely found a way of trying to inspire without the screaming and the shouting. Yeah, and it's interesting as well because, you you know, on Strictly as well, you were cast as as the sort of the bad guy almost and you were given the the black jackets and the straight sort of look and 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 the mean comments kind of followed from there um strictly yeah i think it's very odd because if you think i can't remember how many six seven shows but if you include the christmas shows and the specials i must have done 10 15 however many shows mostly my criticism was as a teacher, was helpful. It's, if you come back next week and we'd love you to come back, you could do this. You need to work on opening your spine. Um, Trying to give advice, trying to give encouragement, absolutely loving those people that grew and every single week and, and improved and being excited by that. But as always, the one comment that comes out like, you know, being hit with a piece of barbed wire is the comment that people remember. Um, So I wasn't necessarily the bad guy on Strictly. I think Craig won that prize. But I was remembered (laughs) for it um, uh, because, A, I think I was a woman and therefore should have been stronger and kinder for women, maybe. But... People will remember um, remember you how they want to remember you. Um, and I think, you know, I did a pretty good job on that show. Absolutely. Uh, final question, question seven then. What's the one show you've seen that you'd happily watch on a loop for the rest of time? The one show that I could watch again and again and again is Hamilton. I went to see Hamilton in New York pretty early on and I sat riveted in my seat and I couldn't even take it all in. 
I knew that I was going to have to see this show again. And luckily, being on my own, I managed to get tickets. And I got tickets for four performances. And the second performance, I managed to take more in. The music was going around in my brain. I managed to really see the scale of it and, and what it was saying. On my third visit, I arrived. I, I got to my seat early and I was surrounded by two men on either side and we got chatting I was pretty excited my hands were sweating couldn't wait to see it again I spoke to the man to my left and I said is this your first time he said oh no 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 I've seen it 26 times I come back again and again and again and I said oh why why do you love it that much he said yes I can't really explain it then I spoke to the man on the right and I think he was seeing it around 11 times and I thought what is it? What gets inside them? Why do they keep coming back? And I decided to listen as I was watching. So my eyes were half closed. And as I was listening to the music, I felt my heart beating almost in tempo with the music. And I realized this is almost controlling the rhythm of my heart, the beat. And by the end of the show, I realized I wanted to come back, not just one more ticket that I bought, but again and again. And I thought the people on either side of me were, were really addicted to this feeling the show gives them. I was becoming addicted to it. I was taking this rhythm, this music away with me, walking out of the theatre. And I have never left the show alone since that time. That's the attraction of Hamilton. That's brilliant. That's all seven questions. I hope that we, and I hope that you get through this and um, we see more of your absolutely extraordinary work in the future. Seven Stages is sponsored by Audible and as well as their many thousands of audiobooks, they've got a collection of audio theatre productions, one of which is the fantastic Diary of a Hounslow Girl. It's written and performed by Ambreen Razia and it's her debut play, although she's an amazing actor too, who's done loads of great work, especially in and around prisons with companies like Synergy and Clean Break. The play is a kind of coming-of-age story which follows Shahida, a teenager growing up in London. And Ambreen not only explores what it's like being a teenage girl, but also brilliantly deconstructs the stereotypes surrounding Muslim women. You can listen for free with a 30-day trial at audible.co.uk forward slash Hounslow. Prices start from $7.99 a month after 30 days, and it renews automatically. That's all for now. Uh, Keep checking the stage.co.uk for the latest news and information about coronavirus and its impact on theatre. I'll be back in a few weeks. Until then, thanks for listening.